good morning. Did I get that on? Okay. Thank you, worship team, for that. Um, what a wonderful anthem to the church, for the church to be singing, facing a task unfinished. We go to all the world, but sometimes the world is only 20.9 miles away, which is where our students have been this past week up in paradise serving alongside of the, the church, Paradise Evangelical Free Church, working with Reach Global Crisis Response. Thank you for your prayers for our students and adults that were a part of that team. They worked really hard. It was really hot. And we saw some incredible things being done, uh, both in just the physical rebuilding and relationships being built and the gospel being proclaimed. And so we appreciate your prayers. Thank you for thinking of us this past week. I also want to say thank you to our the, the Paradise Reach Global staff, the crisis response staff, who saw fit to come and join us this morning. Uh, I, I'm honored that they, they came down. They, they saw me preparing diligently this week while, while we were serving, uh, getting ready to preach. And so they thought they would come down and join us. And so I'm thankful for the Holmans, the Lowe's, the Havens for being here. Make sure you, if you haven't had a chance to meet them or talk to them this morning that you do so after the service is over. Uh, and we do want to continue to pray for what's going on up there. Um, we're going to have a chance to share what, exactly what we did in the coming weeks, um, complete with slideshow and some testimonies from our team members. Um, but continue to pray for the church and the community. And um, just want to share this morning, uh, please especially pray for uh, Paradise Evangelical Free Church. Um, many of you know Lou Harlow. Uh, who came and helped out with our VBS. She is in charge of the children at their church. Uh, she came and helped serve our church's VBS. And her, her grandson, um, two years old, had an accident yesterday, yesterday, I believe, fell into a pool. And they made the decision this morning to take him off life support. So we want to keep her family, her other grandkids, whom she has a lot of, um, hand in raising, um, keep them in, their, in our prayers. In fact, we're going to pray for them right now but can, and pray for that church as they wrap their arms around her and that family. So let's, let's go to them in prayer now. Or go, to, go to him in prayer. Lord, we want to lift up the church in paradise, Lord, as they now seek to minister to a hurting family. And we pray for Lou, for her daughter, Lord, we pray for your supernatural peace and comfort, Lord, to wrap your hand, your arm around them so they would feel your presence. We pray for these other two grandchildren, Lord, as they have to bear this awful news. Lord, we know that you are the God of all peace and all comfort, God, and we know, Lord, that you can, you can work your will. We pray that you would be glorified. We just pray for opportunities, Lord, for your goodness to be proclaimed, and we trust you. Again, we pray for that church and that community, Lord, to be the hands and feet of your son Jesus to them. Lord, we ask that we all these things in your name. Amen. But it is a, a joy to be with you, to be back and worshiping alongside the people of God this morning. And as I always say, it is with great humility and trembling that I stand before you to preach the word of God. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles 
to Matthew chapter 7 as I, I have the, the blessed opportunity to continue in our series through Matthew that Pastor Greg has been leading us through. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11 this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. And the holy, infallible, inerrant Word of God says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Let us pray. O Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow or variations, whose word does not change, we thank you, Lord, for your eternal word to us. We praise you and give you glory for sending your word to us, first in the form of your Son, and then in the form of your Holy Scriptures. May your Holy Spirit write your word upon our hearts that we might follow it more closely, follow you more closely, and keep our paths straight. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. If you haven't done so, if you haven't found it already, you can follow along with our sermon outline in your, in your bulletin, or you can actually pull it up on our church app if you haven't figured out how to do that. You can actually keep notes and, and you can send them to yourself and save them. You can take notes right there on your phone uh, as part of our, our, our app. If you need some help figuring out how to do that, find a young person sitting next to you. Um, maybe they can fig- help you figure it out or uh, find somebody after church and we'll get, you, we'll get you set up using that app if you haven't, if you haven't gotten familiar with it. Uh, while, while I was in seminary, living in Memphis, Tennessee... Um, I'm a, y'all, you guys know I'm a sports fan, and I became a fan of the Memphis Grizzlies, the NBA team that, were, that was there in Memphis that moved there from Vancouver, actually. And I, I enjoyed going to the games when I had opportunity. And one year, I had the opportunity to get season tickets. And so I, I, I got those, went to most of the games that I was able to. They weren't the best seats. I mean, they were pretty much up in the nosebleeds. But I was able to go to the games a lot. And on one occasion... I actually was not able to go to, get to, I wasn't planning to go to the game that I had a ticket for because I had another, um, uh, another uh, obligation. It wasn't something major, but it was just something I wanted to go to, and I had been to several games, so I wasn't going to go. But then I had another friend invite me to go to a particular game, that, that game that I was not already able to go to. And I had to decline. I said, no, I'm sorry, I'm not even able to use my ticket because I'm, I have something else going on. So I wasn't able to go. I turned down this invitation, and another friend of ours ended up going with him. And I later found out that the tickets that he had were courtside, right underneath the basket, like behind, behind one of the baskets. Now, for some of you, you're like, what difference does that make? Okay, I, don't, I wouldn't care about that. In fact, that's way too close to all those players. For me, that, I mean, if, you, like, if you're a baseball fan, you want, you want to sit behind the dugout or behind home plate. For me, I would have loved to have been sitting courtside at an NBA game. Found that out, I was like, oh, man. What an opportunity was missed to sit that close. For me, it would have been awesome. And I turned it down. Now, had I thought to ask where the seats were, maybe I would have changed my plans. But my, my other friend, the one who did, did end up going to the game because I said I couldn't, he told me that if I ever got invited to a game by this guy, I should always say yes because he always had great seats. Of course, he never asked me again. 
So I missed out on probably my only opportunity to ever sit courtside at an NBA game. And I'm not at all bitter about that. But as I've thought about that moment, and I've probably thought about it more than I should, it's reminded me of how often we as believers, as Christians, reject invitations from God, invitations to know him more deeply and more intimately. That's what we've been seeing throughout this section of Matthew that we call the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus has been preaching this sermon, his most famous sermon, he's preaching to believers. Yes, there are people in the audience and in the crowd that that are not, but his, his focus is on those who profess to be following God. And he is inviting them to follow him more closely and challenging them to say, are you really following me? And so as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount for the past several weeks, we've seen this idea, this theme popping up, that there are defining marks of true disciples and of true members of God's family and his kingdom. It began with the Beatitudes, with Christ teaching that his followers will be blessed for being poor in spirit, for being meek, pure in heart, and for hungering and thirsting after God, and for being peacemakers. Then he says that his followers will be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. He taught them how his disciples should regard anger, lust, divorce, and how to love your enemies. He taught them that if they truly are a part of God's kingdom and family, then they will pray, they will fast, they will not be anxious. Now through all of these teachings, he's laying down some pretty tough obligations for those who consider themselves part of the family of God. And of course this is intentional, and by doing this, we see Christ doing a bit of sifting, sorting out the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats by showing what true disciples look like. He, and he's letting those listening who have just been putting on a show that there is much more involved than just paying lip service to God. And he's going to share with them in just a few uh, short verses after this, this section that we're going to go through that there is a great cost in pretending to follow Jesus. But even for those who are true disciples, these commands that Christ has been issuing through his teaching, they seem so heavy that it would be impossible for any of us to keep up, which is precisely the point. And it's why he dishes out encouragement throughout the sermon while telling his followers that they need to be giving to the poor, that they need to be praying, that they need to be fasting. He ended each one of those sections with the phrase, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. We're told not to worry about or not to worry, not about money or what we will eat or what we will wear. Basically, to not be anxious about anything. And we all know that the best way to get someone to not be anxious is to tell them to not be anxious. But Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't just leave it in there and say, stop it. He doesn't say, stop being anxious. He says, stop it because your heavenly father knows your needs. And if you seek him, all your needs will be met. And then just last week, we saw Jesus telling his disciples, telling us, how we should treat one another, how we are to refrain from hasty judgment, how we are to examine ourselves before we point out someone else's sin. And through our passage today, we're going to see how we are able to do that. Loving our neighbor is hard. It's hard because we're sinful. Seeing our own sin is hard. 
It's hard because we're prideful. And what Jesus is telling his listeners is not an easy task. But there is help to be found. And we will find it in the verses for our message today. And what I hope for us to see today is, as the title of the message says, is that there should be perseverance in the Christian life. There ought to be evidence in the life of the believer that we are constantly and continually pursuing after God and trying to know Him more deeply. That's like, as I said, that's been the whole theme of the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus has been saying to those who are following Him that if they are truly His disciples, then this is how they should and ought to behave. This is how they should be praying, fasting, giving, giving. This is how they should be handling anxiety. This is how they should rightfully deal with sin in their own life. As I said, this sermon that Jesus is preaching, it's for believers. With those moments woven in where he challenges those who are on the outside looking in. And especially those who are on the outside but think they are on the inside. He's trying to show them that if they truly do believe and follow God, then this is how they ought to live their lives while also providing encouragement on how to live in such a way. So as Christ's followers were to then, when, as, he, as he preached this message for the first time, and as Christ's followers today, we are to persevere in our love toward God, in our hope in God, in our worship of God, and as I, as I already mentioned, we are to persevere in our pursuit of God. And these verses in Matthew 7 could stand alone as a charge for us. This, this could be just, we could just pull these, these, these verses out if we, if we so desired, and we could say that this is a, just a standalone passage that talks about uh, how we are to ask, seek, and knock, and how we are encouraged to bring all of our requests before God, and how He will meet all of our needs. But as we should do with any passage of Scripture, it is best if we understand it in the context of the whole chapter, or even the whole book. See, the danger in interpreting this particular passage without the context is that it could lead us into thinking that these verses represent some sort of blank check from God. That if we only ask God, or that if we only ask, God will give us whatever we desire. And in talking about prayer, and more specifically what prayer is not, the late R.C. Sproul said, this does not give us a room service menu that we can call to a cosmic bellhop and ask him to provide whatever we might want. And then Dr. Sproul goes on to talk about how even some Christians are being influenced by new age ideas that we could somehow manipulate God or our circumstances by using the right formula, the right words in prayer, by asking in the right manner that we can make anything happen. It's certainly prevalent in the prosperity gospel movement and word of faith teaching of name it and claim it. In fact, this way of thinking was, pu was pushed by the popular prayer of Jabez book that espoused poor theology to lead people to believe that if one would only pray in the manner and faith that Jabez did, then blessings of prosperity would surely follow. Pastor and teacher Steve Lawson, he rightfully critiqued this book by saying, the prayer of Jabez is not a mindless mantra that God always answers, chanted for self-advancement. Instead, it teaches us to seek God faithfully. When he alone is magnified, we will truly be blessed indeed. And the same could be said about this passage. That this is not some magic code to unlock blessings from God. 
And what we're going to see is that Christ is teaching us that if we are to persevere in the kingdom of God and in the family of God, we must be devoted to prayer. Close communion with God will help us see sin in our lives. It will help us to remove that beam from our eye. It will help us to encourage our brother to remove the speck from his eye. Because we cannot hope to do this through our own power. So we turn to the Lord and ask for his help. So let us understand more about the power of prayer as we look more closely at this passage. And we've already been told that Christ or been told by Christ that Christians are expected to pray. He said so in chapter 6 when he told us when he or when he told his listeners when you pray, presuming that they would be praying. So there is this command to pray. It is a command but it, it's, we can also see it as an invitation. All of his commands that we, he gives to his, his, his followers, his disciples, his children, they are invitations to know him more. When Christ commands his followers to pray, he's not saying we should simply do it out of obligation, although that is enough of a reason. But it's that we have been extended an invitation to know him more deeply and more intimately. So there are blessings to be found if we respond to this command, to this invitation, and we would be remiss to reject it. So we should understand prayer as a responsibility of the believer. It's a responsibility to respond to an invitation. We've probably all received an invitation at some point that included an RSVP. Uh, s'il vous plaît. I do that for my French-speaking people here. Did I, how, how was my pronunciation? Was it okay? <laughs> All right. That, if you didn't know, that's what RSVP stood for. Uh, but we, we've gotten those, those RSVPs where they, there is an expected response to the invitation. Christ's command come with an RSVP. And through my outline, I hope to show the different ways this responsibility manifests itself. And so the first thing that we see is the Christian's responsibility to dependence. Now, before we get too far into the text, I think it should be pointed out that these three action verbs that we see here, ask, seek, knock, they're all metaphors for the same thing, prayer. They're not meant to be taken as different forms of prayer or different, they're not different ideas. They all mean the same thing, pray. Now, we are going to, I'm going to take those and show different ways that we pray, but they all have to do with the same idea, pray. They all are meant to convey that if we want to live the Christian life as we're commanded to, then we ought to be spending time in prayer. But we do have three different words used, so how can we use these words to better apply the meaning to our lives? Well, when we think of the word ask, it implies a desire or a need. When you ask somebody something, you are expressing a desire to have or that it's a desire to, that you need something. And when you ask somebody of that, you are expressing your dependence on them to give you what you ask. Whether it is for an object, an item, or for assistance, you are expressing your dependence on them to help. Jesus had just finished giving his listeners an exhortation on how we ought to love one another and how we should examine ourselves to see if there is any sin that we ought to confess. Th these are not easy things to do. We don't like to recognize our faults and our weaknesses, and we certainly don't like to admit them when we notice them. 
That is why we need Christ. It's why David wrote in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In being a good teacher, Christ does not shy away from telling his disciples to do hard things. But he does give them the means with which they can accomplish those hard things. A good teacher isn't the one who never gives tests, who doesn't hand out grades because he doesn't want them, th those kids to feel pressure or that they can't do anything. The good teacher is the one who makes sure that you have the proper knowledge and tools to accomplish and demonstrate what you've learned. A good teacher doesn't give you the easy way out, but walks alongside you as you attempt the hard things. In just a couple of verses, Christ is going to tell his listeners that the path of discipleship is not easy, but we are not meant to walk that path alone. In fact, we cannot walk that path alone. We are dependent on Christ for everything that we are expected to do as believers. So all we need to do is ask for help. When talking about the, the struggle against worldliness, the Apostle James, he wrote, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James 4, 1, through, 1 and 2. So we must understand that we don't go to God in prayer and petition because God is unaware of our needs. We've seen that already. Pastor Greg talked about this when we were going through Matthew 6 and the teaching of the Lord's Prayer. We're not informing God that, of anything that he does not know. We, we, we were told then that our prayers are a way of declaring our dependence on our creator, our provider, our sustainer. Christ is well aware of our needs. Before giving this discourse that we have here in, in Matthew 5-7 through 7, that we have the Sermon on the Mount, we saw Christ's temptation in the wilderness. And so with every exhortation that he gives in this sermon, Christ's, Christ knows the struggles that we will face to live up to these commands. It's why the author of Hebrews writes, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then have confidence, draw near. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4. So we're not informing God of our need, but by coming to him through Christ, we are acknowledging that we understand that our needs are only met through the mercy and the grace of our Heavenly Father. God loves to pour out his blessings on those who ask him. Now, of course, we see evidence of common grace where God's blessings are given to those who do not ask and even to those who may not have a relationship with or even love God. But we can see throughout Scripture that God gives generously to his children, to those who ask of him. Again, the words of David in Psalm 86, he says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. The prophet Jeremiah received this word from God, Then you will call upon me and come to pray to me, and I will hear you. 
And there are further teachings from Christ, such as in the Gospel of Mark. When Mark 11, he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now this is where we need to be careful and make sure that we're not misinterpreting what Christ is saying, both in that verse that I just read from Mark and in our passage here in Matthew. Because we have to look at the whole of Scripture in context to help us understand and see that Christ is not promising that anything we ask for, he will surely grant. Just a moment ago, we read from, from the book of James in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 2, which says, You do not have because you do not ask. But if you keep reading and you go to verse 3, James tells us, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Then the evangelist gives us some clarity on our asking if we read 1 John First John 3, 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And then in 1 John 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We must trust that God knows and desires what is best for us. Much like a parent who doesn't give in to every demand of their child, God doesn't give us everything that we ask for. A parent who doesn't allow their kid to eat cake and ice cream for dinner simply because that's what they asked for isn't being unloving or withholding, but knows that a proper meal has more nutritional value and is better for them. And while I certainly wouldn't recommend getting your theology from country music, Garth Brooks did say something right when he sang, Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. It is an act of mercy when God doesn't give us everything we ask for. So how do we know how we ought to ask? Well, John gives us a hint in that verse that we just read in 1 John when he said, Keep his commandments and do what pleases him, and by asking according to his will. Well, how do we know what the will of God is? Well, that, the answer to that leads us to our second point as we move to the second invitation and command that Christ gives us to seek and you will find. And we see the Christian's responsibility to search the scriptures. Now, I've used this illustration before that searching for God is about as hard as playing hide and seek with a toddler. You know, you come into the room and you hear the giggling coming from the closet you see a big lump that's shaking under the blankets on the bed, or you see the feet sticking out from behind the curtains. So to say that we are to seek God is not to say that God is hiding himself from us, but again, that he wants us to come to him. Now, I already mentioned how all three of these commands, ask, seek, and knock, are all tied to the invitation that God has given us to come to him in prayer. So we mustn't think that after all that we've just seen in the verses before that illustrate how God wants us to come to him and ask him for things, that now when we are told to seek him, that he's trying to not be found. Once our hearts have been regenerated and we come to Christ in salvation, it pleases God to reveal himself, and he does, throw, he does so through his word. The Apostle Paul expresses this in his greeting to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, and it's a long section, but let me just read this. This is his, his greeting to the church. And he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, 
that the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? All those words in there, wisdom, knowledge, revelation, it's all referring to the word of God. In order to know how we ought to ask and what we ought to ask for, we have to know who God is and what he desires of us. And we know this by reading and searching the scriptures. Now, to his original audience who didn't have the whole of Scripture, they were to search what they did have in terms of the written word of God. They ought to have been searching what, the, what they would have received at the temple and what the, 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 the teachers, the rabbis would have taught them and the, and the scrolls that they did have. They, yes, that's what they were to search. But they also had the living in the flesh word of God right in front of them. And so the Jesus who tells them, ask, seek, knock, is saying, follow me, literally follow me. I mean, it's different when we hear we say follow. When we hear someone say follow Christ, it's like okay, it's it's a it's a mental uh, heart thing that we are following after Jesus. But here, it's it was literal. Jesus is saying, "I'm going this way. You come, follow me." And he who's saying, "Follow me," and you will get the word of God. Those who would keep following Jesus, they would learn further about how they ought to live according to God's standard, how they ought to love their neighbor, how they ought to pray, fast, give, not be anxious. Because Jesus' teaching didn't stop at the Sermon on the Mount. He gave this big sermon, and he, went, he was probably going rapid fire. He gave, we have it all here in the text. He's like, here's a, here's a short section on this, and I'm going to move on to this. And there are people who are probably like you are right now as I'm talking super fast, and you're like, would you slow down? I can't get it all in. And they, there might be people there with Jesus going, I, I don't know what he, he said. What did he say? He's looking at somebody looking, what, what did you write? I didn't get that last point. What, 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 I didn't, Jesus. Well, he's saying, follow me. I'll give you more. I'll give you more. I'll expound on what I just told you. And he does so. And we can keep reading Matthew's gospel, which we're going to do. And we're going to see Jesus provide his own commentary to the sermon he just preached. He preached on not being anxious. And then in chapter 8, we see Jesus calming the storm and asking his disciples, why are you afraid? He preached on fasting. And then in chapter 9, he goes out further with that teaching and expounds on it. He preached on not laying up treasures here on earth. And in Matthew 19, we see the rich young ruler being shown his love for possessions was keeping him from following God. So the people hearing this sermon for the first time had the opportunity to go deeper in their understanding if they would continue to follow the word of God. And for us today, we have the opportunity to learn more and more about what God expects of us, how we should live, how we should love one another, if we would only seek and search the word of God. And so our prayer life ought to be fueled by the scriptures. It would be a great practice that when you sit down to pray, you have your Bible with you. It's why we ought to be memorizing Scripture so that as we are praying, the Holy Spirit is bringing to our mind the promises of God. And this past week, as we were serving in paradise, one of our daily tasks was to prayer walk through the community. And one of the things that we were given was a, it was a, it was a prayer guide, or it was Scriptures to pray while 
you're walking. Now, we didn't always use this, but it was there and it made available. And as I was looking through this, it was a great reminder of how we can pray God's word. It guides us in what we should say. So as we're walking through and we're praying, and we might be thinking of how can we pray for the people of paradise? How can we pray for them to know God more? We can pray Colossians 1 verse 9. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And, for, and, and praying both for the people of, and praying for the people of God, both living in paradise and for the and for our own group that was there for our church as well, we could be praying Romans fifteen verse five. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. And as we were praying for more people to come and serve and share the gospel with that community, we remember we could remember Matthew nine thirty eight. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. When we allow the word of God to guide our prayers, it helps us to ensure that we are asking according to God's will and not our own. Author John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, he said, Since God gives gifts only if they, if they accord with his will, we will have to take pains to discover his will. By scripture meditation and by the exercise of a Christian mind schooled by scripture meditation. And then again, quoting R.C. Sproul, he said, those who have the most powerful prayer life are those who have mastered the word of God. So as Christ is commanding us to pray and inviting us into a deeper relationship with himself, he is encouraging us to seek and to search, not because his will is hidden from us like it's a secret, but because it's a treasure that ought to be desired. And it's something that we ought to continue, be continually searching for which leads me to our next major point, and that is the Christian's responsibility to persistence. When we look at the grammar in this passage, particularly at the three action commands that we are given, ask, seek, and knock, we find that the, all three of these words are in the present active imperative tense. Imperative demonstrates that this is an, or tells us that this is a command. That's what imperative means. It's a command. And then the present active tense demonstrates that this is an ongoing action. What that means is that what Christ is saying, he's saying ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. These are not one and done commands, but they point to the idea of persistence, which also further shows how these words are all connected and it's, how, and it's impossible to separate them into two, into different or distinct ideas because we ask in persistence, we seek in persistence, and we knock in persistence. And knocking also supports what we saw earlier, that our prayers show our dependence on God. Using the word knock, Christ is giving us this picture of a door. And the idea of a door suggests that there is something on the other side of that door. And it is something that is unattainable until the person on the other side opens that door. And so what we are asking for, what we are searching for, it is only provided us by God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. And like I just mentioned in the previous point, this is not to suggest that God is being withholding. Or, and he is only answering us because of our persistence. This idea is suggested by some. They refer to it as the beggar's wisdom, that if you persist long enough, you'll eventually get what you're asking for. And people have even attempted to use Christ's own teaching 
from Luke chapter 18 and the parable of the persistent widow to suggest that if we simply beg God hard enough and long enough, he will honor our request. But Luke even clarifies what that parable means at the beginning of that chapter. And he says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. The point of the parable and the point of Christ's teaching here is that we ought always to pray and we ought not lose heart. If you keep reading the parable in Luke 18, you'll see a lot of similarities between what Christ, between that teaching and what Christ is teaching here. Let me just read for you a little bit from that parable. Uh, Luke 18, uh, beginning in verse 2, it says, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on earth. What Jesus is doing here in that parable and what, we're, what we see him do here in Matthew, it's, it's, it's his argument, this comparison argument from, or, from, or it's an arguing from the lesser to the greater. In other words, if the lesser is true, then the greater must be true. Jesus told his listeners, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And what he's saying is, if an unrighteous judge will listen to the requests of someone who keeps asking, how much more will your heavenly father who loves you and who called you will listen to you? God desires our persistence, again, not because he doesn't want to provide for his children, but quite the opposite, in fact. He wants to bless his children, so he wants us to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, and to keep on knocking. Sometimes the answer to a prayer might be delayed, as God is teaching us patience or dependence. And as we've already discussed, he might not answer because we're not asking for the right thing or with the right motives. That is why when teaching his disciples to pray, Christ said we are to pray, thy will be done. Not our will be done, but God's will. And this is where many people get hung up, though, because they want God's will revealed before they pray. Or they think that every aspect of God's will is going to be revealed because they prayed. There are parts of God's will that, that are hidden to us because it's not for us to know. So when we pray for God's will, we ought to be praying that we obey God's commands to live in holiness, to live in a manner that glorifies God. That is how we know that we are following God's will. When faced with decisions, many times it comes down to not which choice is good or bad, but which choice will most glorify God. And we have to understand as we're praying for God's will, we must also understand that we can never screw up God's will. We can certainly go against it by sinning, but we can never make God throw up his hands in exasperation and go, I cannot believe they picked that option. See, God's will is best understood in hindsight, meaning if it happened, it was God's will. You may be praying over a decision, whether it's to take this job or that job, to go to this school or that school or whatever that might be. 
As long as the choice is not sinful, the will of God will be whichever one you end up taking because if it's not in God's will, it will not happen. What we are essentially praying is that we will be submissive to God's will and that we will glorify God through whatever path he leads us down or however he chooses to answer our prayers. Which leads us to our final point which takes into account the first three responsibilities that we've discussed to ask God to search the scriptures, to be persistent. But now we have a responsibility to trust God. It's in verses 9 through 10 that we see Jesus use that same lesser to greater argument that I mentioned a moment ago, where he asks the question, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? So Jesus began his par- his, this little brief parable here with an illustration that pretty much all of his listeners would have understood. It's, it's something that would have been common to so many of them, a child coming to their father with a simple request, a request for something wholesome to eat. The bread and fish were the most common food, uh, or, uh, were the most common of food in the Sea of Galilee region where Jesus was teaching. And so these rhetorical questions about what, ki- what kind of father would give his child something as useless as a rock or as dangerous as a serpent when their child was wanting something to eat. And in the very next verse, he answers his own question by saying that if even a sinful man wouldn't be so cruel to his child, how much more gracious and generous is the perfect and sinless God of all creation. So when Christ referred to his listeners and he refers to us as readers, he says, you who are evil, what he's doing is, he's, this is, this is Jesus teaching on the doctrine of total depravity. We're all evil compared to God. We are, we are all stained with sin. Jesus was simply saying, if you, if you who are sinful, which we all are, and he wasn't saying that we were as bad as we possibly could be, but because of the sinful nature that indwells each person, we are evil in comparison to the holiness of God. Now, have there been fathers who would have been so evil that they would have done something as similar as Jesus described to their own children? I'm certain that there probably have been. And Jesus knows this as well. But the point that he is making is that most fathers who, despite having a sinful heart, wouldn't be so cruel to deny their child a request of food. Now, does that mean that every child ought to expect to receive everything they ask of their earthly father? Maybe we should bring the kids back in here to hear this. No, children shouldn't expect to receive everything their heart desires, and neither should we expect that of God. Because as we just pointed out, our hearts are stained with sin. And as we've seen, we don't always ask with the best of intentions. But again, that's not the point. I knew growing up and even to this day that if I approached my earthly father with a need, he will do everything in his power to make sure that that need is met. That doesn't mean giving it to me. He might help me or he might show me that, you know, that's really not a need. If I came to him with a request of a need, he he was going to help me. I know that my earthly father would do that. How much more will my heavenly father do the same thing? And if I could borrow Jesus' teaching method, but this time go from a greater to lesser argument, if I as a Christian have trusted God to meet my greatest need, which is to have my sins forgiven, how much more can I trust him to meet my day-to-day needs? Such as helping me be a better Christian brother to my fellow believers, or helping me see what sin that I have in my life that I need to repent of. Maybe we need to ask God for help in being more generous. 
for help in fasting more often, for help in being less anxious. What Christ has been teaching all throughout this sermon is that the life dedicated and devoted to following after God is not easy. And in the next section, Jesus will say as much when he talks about the wide and narrow gates. He knows the difficulties we face in living a life of discipleship, but he offers help. He wants us to pour out our hearts in fervent prayer because he knows his Father takes pleasure in answering those prayers. If we were to take another look at the book of James, which has already shown us many times that we do not have because we do not ask, he goes on later to exhort us, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him then pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power at its working. Are you trusting that God will hear and answer your prayers? Are you trusting that his answer to your prayer is always the best answer? Even if it's not the answer you might have been looking for. Are you trusting him even if his answer seems delayed? You know, we've been praying for the community of paradise since November of 2018. We've been praying for our sister church, Paradise EFC. This week we were able to see how God has been answering those prayers. God has been rebuilding that church. He's been rebuilding it, rebuilding it through some of the homes of its members that have been rebuilt. It's, he's been rebuilding that church as, we've, as new people have been coming to the church. And small part, that's due to the work of the volunteer teams that have been going up there the past three years. The gospel is being proclaimed all throughout that city. It might have been easy to lose heart when it seemed like there wasn't much progress after a year. But people kept praying. Pastor Art kept praying. The staff at Crisis Response kept praying. Churches like ours kept praying. It was prayer that involved asking, seeking, knocking. It involved perseverance and persistence. Is that what your prayer life looks like? Do we desire God's will above all else that he might be glorified in all that we do? Do our desires align with God's will? Quoting John Stott again, he says, Prayer is the chief means that God has ordained by which to express our deepest desires. This is the reason why the ask, seek, knock commands are in the present imperative and in ascending scale to challenge our perseverance. Thus, before we ask, we must know what to ask for and whether it accords with God's will. We must believe that God can grant it and we must genuinely want to receive it. Then the gracious promises of Jesus will come true. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is offering his kingdom and his righteousness to those who would follow him. And to those who will follow him, he doesn't offer the carefree life, but he does offer us his Holy Spirit and the means to grow in holiness. Is this the focus of our prayers? May the Holy Spirit guide our prayer life that we would not only be persistent, but also guiding our hearts to be more like Christ. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father,
You love to pour out your grace and your blessings on those who who you call your own. And Lord, we cry out to you that you would fill us with the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. May we desire your will above our own. That we would be resolved to study, to search the scriptures. That we might be more in tune with your will. May we walk in holiness, seeking to please and honor you as our heavenly father, the giver of all good things. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.